Hey gamers, this is Joe from What I'm Playing Now. I have episode 158 of the podcast that was originally recorded on April 23rd of 2017. Some of the games I played this week, welcome back to the dungeon, a little vast the Crystal Caverns, some yin-yang dice, a little yido, some Seven Wonders Dual Pantheon, an excellent expansion, and a little Knights of Pen and Paper plus one on my Android device. I also talked about a few of the things that I want to play. Enjoy the episode. Welcome to the games. This is Joe Luzzi from What I'm Playing Now, and welcome to episode 158 of the What I'm Playing Now podcast. As always, you can send me some emails. Let me know what you're playing now. You can send those emails to what I'm playing now at gmail.com. You can join us over on Board Game Geek. We have a guild there. Guild number 2440 is our guild number on Twitter. You can follow me at What I'm Playing Now and see some of the games that I am playing during the week. And you can probably then figure out what I'm going to be talking about on the podcast. On Facebook, just do a search for What I'm Playing Now. Our Google Plus page is plus.google.com slash the plus sign. What I'm Playing Now podcast. And then, as always, our Twitch channel is twitch.tv slash what I'm Playing Now. All right, let's jump into a few of the games I played this past week. We have a very nice list here. I made it down to my local game store a couple of times this week and had a hell of a lot of fun playing some great, great games. The first game we started off with on Monday was a little card game with some tiles in there called Welcome Back to the Dungeon. I had originally talked about Welcome to the Dungeon probably sometime last year when it had first come out. I probably should have looked up to see what podcast I actually talked about that on. Uh, but Welcome Back to the Dungeon is the successor to Welcome to the Dungeon. The new characters that you are going to be able to play in this one is a ninja, a princess, a bard, and a necromancer. Pretty much the game is played exactly the same way as Welcome to the Dungeon. It doesn't look like they changed any of the rules in that sense from what we can remember. It had been a while since I actually played Welcome to the Dungeon, so I actually had to sit there and skim through the rules real quick for Welcome Back to the Dungeon to try to remember everything. But um, one of the nice things they actually give you is a very nice health tracker, so you can kind of keep track of that on a little board. Nothing fancy, it's just a little thin piece of cardboard paper with a little just little heart token on there that lets you keep track of your health. Uh, the game plays, like I said, extremely similar to a Welcome to the Dungeon. I can't say that there is much difference between them. The items that they actually give you in this one, some of them do a few different things than what the uh, than what some of the items did in the original game. If you're not familiar with the original Welcome to the Dungeon, what this game is, this is a push your luck game on your turn. You are going to draw a card. You will then figure out if you want to add that monster to the dungeon or if you want to put that monster face down in front of you. And then one of the tiles that are laid out for whichever adventurer you are going to be taking through that dungeon, you can take one of their tiles and put that on the card, which is essentially going to remove it from play. Whoever feels that... Uh, there are either too few tiles left or the dungeon is too large, can basically pass on their turn. We were playing a two-player game, so in a two-player game, once one person passes, the other person picks up the deck of cards that is the dungeon, starts flipping it over, and then starts to see whether they can survive the dungeon or not. 
and that's that's the gist of the whole game. I mean, there really isn't a lot to it. It's a fun push-your-luck game. It's it's a nice filler game that we like to play sometimes at the beginning of an evening before we get into some heavier games. So we were trying to figure, just find a quick two-player game. I saw Welcome Back to the Dungeon, and I looked at my buddy Dave and said, let's try this one real quick since we... I had never played this one before, and I don't think he had either. Um, I think both of us had played the original before, so I liked it. This one's okay. Like I said, it doesn't add a whole hell of a lot new to the original premise. It gives you new characters, which is kind of nice. The health tracker is okay. Is it needed? Probably not. You can pretty much just count numbers without having to need a whole scoring sheet for that, but it is nice to have, and since they included it, why not use it? So welcome back to the dungeon. If you're looking for a nice filler game, something you can play in probably 15 to 20 minutes uh, because you're trying to essentially win two of the uh, two of the adventures you know, cards that they have. I can't remember what they're actually referred to in the game, but they're the yellow cards. And if you, once you win and successfully complete a dungeon, you get one. You're trying to collect two of those. So sometimes you're playing multiple games in this one to actually finish a whole game. Um, but it was kind of cool. We liked it. We had a good time with it. Um, I don't know if I'll be adding Welcome Back to the Dungeon to my collection since I do have the first one. Like I said, this one plays so close to that first one and we get it to the table so little. If you don't have either of these, I'd probably pick up the second one just because it does have a few more added components to it. It does seem like they have re revised it just a little bit, so it probably is a little bit better. But that is it. That's a little game. I believe Aiello is the one who puts, puts that one out. Welcome Back to the Dungeon. Give that one a shot if you're looking for a nice filler game. But then after that, we moved on to a much, much bigger game, Vast the Crystal Caverns. We had Patrick Leader on the show a long, long time ago. I believe it was episode 80 that we actually interviewed Patrick. He is He actually published Vast the Crystal Caverns. I believe he also had some work in the design of it. I will say that this game got a lot of hype last year when I was at Gen Con. I actually met Patrick when I was there, which was really cool. I was really excited to meet him. Um, I had gotten my Kickstarter copy a lot last year sometime, and it sat on my shelf. We've I've just never had a chance to pull it out and sit down and just try to learn the rules. The one tricky thing with this one when you're trying to teach it, the way this game plays, each player at the table is essentially playing their own game. Each player has their own set of rules that they're going to need to follow. And so I'm definitely not going to be able to give my normal rule run through that I do for this one because holy crap, that would probably take about an hour to try to go through the five different rules for the different characters. But we had a four player game going. One person played the cave, one person played the knight, one person played the goblins, which was me. And then the final person played the dragon. What you're trying to do in this game is the goblin is trying to kill the knight. The knight's trying to kill the dragon. The dragon's trying to, I think, just basically wake up and get out of the dungeon. And the cave's trying to kill everybody, I believe, is how pretty much the game goes. Uh, the component quality is really nice in this game. I will say I was really, really impressed with the way the game looked uh, once we got everything all set up. I playing as the goblins, I had a heck of a lot of fun. The goblins were a little tricky um, because there's just several. You have three different tribes you're trying to control, and you're trying to figure out when to actually get them on the board, how to move them around, or to possibly leave them behind and try to get a stack of goblins going in one of the different factions. So this way, maybe the cave can actually, when they flip over a card or when the knight flips over a card from the cave, maybe they could actually kind of spring into action and surprise somebody and do and do an attack that way. 
I don't think I actually successfully ever was able to pull one of those off. Every time I tried to leave a stack of my goblins back on my own board, they just, nobody ever seemed to draw a card to where they could come out and actually do an ambush. So I would just go ahead and play them. And then usually the next round, somebody would draw an ambush card. And we looked and I had no goblins on my tile, on my tableau in front of me, ready to go. Um, but I will say that the instructions for this game, they give you individual sheets for the different um, kind of people that you're playing. So I had my own goblin sheet besides the, you know, the full rule book. They give you kind of like rule summary sheets that you could give to each of the individual players. And I will say that this was probably one of the best things I've seen in a game in a while when it comes to rules. We all sat there really quick. You know, the my buddy Dave that was teaching us the game, he actually did a really good job teaching the four of us how our different the characters that we were playing actually moved how they worked and what their what their actions were and what they were trying to do, what their goal was. And, you know, as as he was teaching somebody else, the rest of us were kind of sitting there skimming through our our own individual rule sheet, just trying to make sure we we get everything down. I had missed a couple of things with the goblins early on that I caught halfway through the game. And one of our one of our other friends down there, he says, you know, definitely refer to that rule sheet often, he goes, because there's going to be something you're going to miss. Notice it halfway through the game, and by, lo and behold, I did with the goblins, which is kind of funny. But I will say that I can see why this game had so much hype on uh, Board Game Geek last year, why everybody was really talking about it at um, Gen Con, was so excited for it. I know they had a second copy, um, a second printing come out, which they did a Kickstarter for, and you could get, like, updated meeples for it and everything. And I, I almost kind of wish I would have got the upgraded components for it now for my copy, since I did get the original um, version of this game. I really like this, and I need to figure out how I can sit down and maybe teach this game to my wife, and we can get in some two-player games of this, because I think we would really enjoy this game. It's There's just there's just so much going on with the game, with, like I said, with the five different characters. Everybody's playing their own, their own kind of game, I guess you could say. So in our game, the the knight started out, and he, he was moving around the dungeon. The dungeon actually got large enough to where all of the dungeon tiles were placed, once he's once the dungeon places the dungeon character places all of their tiles, they're going to actually start collapsing the dungeon in on everybody. So you need to make sure that, you know, you're not going to get kind of like caved in on or be in the way of him removing tiles. And once he can get so many of the crystal tiles, I think it was five of them removed from the board. Uh, that's how the cave can win the game. I had actually inflicted some damage onto the knight. Uh, there were. I don't think I did as much damage as I could have to the knight. I think he was down to like three health. The dragon character that um, one of my friends was playing actually did wake up. The dragon starts off sleeping to where he's kind of like underground underneath the, underneath the cave, I guess you could say. And then when he wakes up, he's actually walking around the dungeon, which is which is a tricky thing. The, the dragon got very close to the exit. Um, once, but then somebody kind of, I think the knight kind of blocked his path and he wasn't able to get out. Uh, but the knight actually did finally win the game by slaying the dragon, I believe is how he won. And it was just a really fun game. There's, like I said, going into the rules for this game, considering there are actually five different rule sets that I would need to go through. I'm not even going to attempt that on the podcast. That is something more for a video cast or its own show, actually, trying to do something like that in here. I just don't think it would be feasible. So I may not be talking about this game as long as I possibly should be, but I will say I really enjoyed the game. I took a picture of it, tweeted it out, 
Patrick asked how I really liked it, and I said it it definitely definitely just lived up to all the hype that it had, and I was just just very impressed with the game. I wish I would have gotten this game to the table six months ago when I had it first got it, rather than waiting so long to actually play it. And of course, this is yet another one of those games where I have had it from since the beginning. And uh, of course, when we played it this past week, we we didn't play my copy, so my copy is still sitting there in the box unplayed. But um, I definitely want to teach teach this one to the wife and try to get this one to the table. I'm hoping I may take this down for Tabletop Day and see if we can maybe get a game of this in for Tabletop Day. I think this would be a very cool game to stream, especially with all the stuff that's going on and the interactivity that it does have. There really isn't much downtime between your turns. You pretty much do need to be paying attention when everybody else is taking their turns just so you know, just so you have your head in the game and you know where everybody's at and what everybody's goal is. And you can try to, if you feel one person is trying to start to pull away with the lead, the rest of the people can kind of gang up on that person and and slow them down and stop them and start working together. So there's a lot of table table interaction can be going on in this game, which I think is is a really, really cool thing for a game. I haven't really played a game like this before. This is definitely definitely something completely different than any of the games I've ever played down at the game store before. And wow, Vast the Crystal Caverns is definitely a great game and it deserves all the hype and talk that it gets. If you have not played this one yet, definitely see if you can find somebody that has this game. Get it to the table, and then I have a feeling you'll be running out and buying this one immediately. It is a great, great game. After that, I believe that was Monday is what we played. Those are the couple of games we played on Monday. And then I went down to my local game store on Thursday. Um, My buddy Eric and I, we started off with a little dice game that looked kind of interesting called Ying Yang Dice. And what you're trying to do on this one, you're trying to outscore your opponent. You're going to be rolling um, a die at the beginning of your turn and then putting it out onto a little tableau that's in the middle of the table when you're playing with only two players. I believe the 4x4 grid is cut down to a 3x4 grid. You can put the dice anywhere you want, but however you roll the dice, you need to make sure that the orientation is kept the same. So exactly how that dice is sitting when it's done rolling, you need to put that in the... At, at, at basically in the same direction as how it finished rolling and whatever um, die face is facing you, whatever die face is on the top, it needs to stay in that orientation because that is how you're going to do a lot of your final scoring. At the beginning of the game, everybody's going to draw one card and that card will give you a particular color. I believe there are four different colors in the game. And what you're going to try to do is you're going to try to get those dice essentially kind of like in the row facing you as whichever numbers are facing you is how you're going to score. And so whatever dice you can see. And the neat thing is on your turn, you can take a die out of the bag, roll it, and then put that die on the table. You can move a die on the table. You can actually even roll a die. So it would be facing a different a different face would be facing you or on the top. You can move a die on top of one another. So there are a couple of different actions and movements types you can take to try to make the game have a little bit of strategy to it. But I don't there really just wasn't a lot going on with the game. The dice looked cool. It was neat trying to come up with a little bit of strategy, but there just there just wasn't a whole hell of a lot to the game to keep me really interested in it or saying, yeah, go pick this one up. It was an okay dice game. After we were done playing it, we were like, eh, okay, this is okay. 
Nothing broken about the game, but then again, nothing spectacular. It's a light filler. Do not expect too much out of the game. Of course, this was the first game we played on that Thursday evening, so when I usually talk about those first games, those are going to be a lighter filler style game that we usually try to knock out in 15 to 30 minutes while I'm usually eating my dinner and um, we're waiting for other people to get there. But then once other people did show up, we jumped over to a four-player game of Yido. Yido, I guess you can kind of will remind you a little bit of Lords of Waterdeep, but imagine Lords of Waterdeep on steroids. So a couple of weeks ago, I had talked about Quest of Valeria, which is basically taking almost like a Lords of Waterdeep and giving you that feel in a straight card game. Lords of Waterdeep is an excellent um, beginner, you know, ground entry level worker placement game. Yido is a worker placement game with an auction component to it, some really, really crazy ass cards, and just a lot going on in the game. And it is definitely will remind you um, of Lords of Waterdeep, but Lords of Waterdeep that has basically been shooting up for a few years and is just definitely bulked up. So on your turn, you're going to start off with an auction type phase. That auction phase is, of course, after you're doing a little bit of cleanup from the previous round where you're advancing your turn marker, adding a few and refreshing a few of the different spots on the board. But the bidding area, but the bidding in this game is actually really interesting, the auction one. It's going to start off, the player that is in first place will get to choose one of the seven different areas, I believe it is, that you're going to have to put then your um, token onto just to show that 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 auction has been completed for that particular component for the round and that cannot be duplicated. Although there are some cards you can play that will let you possibly do that. There's all, since there are cards in the game, let's just say the cards can always break the rules. So we won't even try to go down that road right now, but normally when you're playing this in the, in our four player game, the person with the first player token will get to decide which area they want to actually try to bid for. Bidding will go around the table the neat thing about this one is, though, it comes back to the player who actually started the bidding, and they can outbid everybody if they want. So if it goes around the table and I say I'm going to bid for one of the $3 spots, and then it goes, the next player bids 4 and then 5 and then 6 it can come back to me and I can go, well, I'm going to bid 7 and take it, and nobody else gets any other bids, and I get that, and lo and behold, we're done. Which I think is kind of neat, you know, in that you're giving the player that actually started the bidding the opportunity to outbid everybody else, um, rather than it just going to the highest bidder in just a one-shot straight round. I kind of like that about the game. The other thing you can actually do during the bidding phase, you can actually sit out of bidding for the turn and actually just collect three gold or three dollars if you want, whatever the current, I can't remember what the actual currency was. You can collect three, you know, three of the currency and then just sit out and you don't get to bid in any of the rounds. But it's gonna you're going to go around the table, do your auctioning, the person who is last, of course, just like in most games, they will then get to pick whichever area they want to go to and then just have to pay the appropriate cost for that. Like I said, I believe there are seven different sections on the board. I think it was seven um, that you can actually go for. Uh, so you have a lot of different choices that you're going to try to do. And what you're going to do in this game is, since it is worker placement, you're trying to collect resources to finish missions. Kind of just like in most worker placement games, that is the essence of this game. And when you break it all down, that is kind of what you're going for. But there is just so much more going on when you're completing missions. Because when you complete a mission, sometimes there are blessings you could possibly get. There's geisha girls you can possibly get. 
There's other things you can you can collect. And sometimes when you um, finish a mission, depending on the different levels, there's four different levels of missions. There's green, yellow, red, and black, and green is the lowest, black is the highest of difficulty. You know, a green mission could essentially just make you put a worker on a particular location. Just have him there, and then you can get some money. If you have some additional resources in front of you or one of the dojos or a different building in front of you, then there are interesting components on the cards in that some of those additional things you could have in front of you could give you a bonus to the mission that you're trying to complete. So you uh, you almost have two different parts to the mission that you have in front of you, and you don't necessarily need to complete the bonus. The bonus is what it is, just a bonus. If you can complete it, it's nice. If you but you don't have to. There's also end game cards that were that had a purple backing to them that could give you different end game bonus points and victory points for possibly having the most. Um, thief cards or the most of a particular other style card or not having a particular style of card in you know that you finished or having one of all the different style of cards or actually having one of the blessing tokens which is one of the cards that I have but I of course spent my blessing and then was not able to get it back because I ran out of workers during that last round but you also have an event phase that will come up here in the game so I guess let's get back to the auction after auctioning Everybody's going to do a phase where you're cleaning up the market and then actually revealing an event card, which is what I was just going to start getting into talking about a couple seconds ago. And the event card can really, really throw a twist in this game. It, this is a, a big-time randomizer. We were kind of playing, I guess you could say we were maybe playing the base game. We weren't using the the samurai cards that could be added to the game. Uh, we didn't want it to be as crazy random as it could have been as just playing without those cards the game is very random just within itself just between the different cards you can draw and what these events can do so an event can actually close down some of the different locations on the board that you can put your workers in that come up during the next phase which is the assignment phase so you could have a whole section of the board that is just completely blocked off that you may need to try to have to put a worker on to complete a mission, but you can't. So you now need to sit here and think, okay, well, I'm not going to complete this mission like I thought I was going to be able to this round. What can I do now? What other type of resources? What can I try to do to try to set myself up to not only complete this mission in a following round, but what can I try to build up now and maybe complete now or collect resources to prepare to maybe do two missions in the next round? So there's a heck of a lot going on. You're going to start off with, I think, uh, four workers, I think it was. Then you're going to be able to add two additional workers to your pool of workers and end up with six total, which is a, which was a nice number at the end of the game. You kind of really needed that many towards the end. But then let's talk about the next phase of the game. After, your, um, you know, after that event phase where you're going to reveal that particular event, you then are going to place all your workers in different locations. The different locations are going to let you possibly buy something at the market, trade in coins for victory points, do various things in, in all of the different parts of the board. But after that, you then have a watch patrol that is going to be moved. In the center of the board, there's like a little dial um, that you're going to be moving a little pawn around. And there's two different colors. There's a blue pawn and a red pawn. I believe the game starts out with a blue pawn out and it moves clockwise. 
But at any time, somebody could play a card or an event card could come up that could change the worker to the other color, and then it starts moving counterclockwise. And on this phase, in this phase, the fifth phase of the, of the tur- of the round, and I believe there's eleven rounds to the game. You're going to move this patrol card, and whoever is in the zone that this patrol is currently on could be get could get arrested. They're going to get removed from the board. So you move the watch, and then in, in player order, everybody could have a chance to affect the movement of the watch. And then after that, they can try to basically, if the watch is in their area, they can play a card which will not let them get arrested. So you can lose workers to this damn watch patrol as you're playing the game. I don't think it happened to me during the game. I think there was one turn where um, two guys actually did lose um, one of each of their characters that they had in an area. But it's really interesting because you try to sit there and the cards that you're drawing and that you're given that will let you do different things. Some of them can control the movement of this watch patrol. So you're trying to figure out the best time to actually play them. Do you play them when you can possibly screw somebody over? Or do you save it when you're trying to save your own characters behind? Because they are in the possibility of maybe getting, you know, arrested by this guy. It's a really interesting concept to the game. And it's something you really need to watch out for. Especially what color he is, being red or blue. And when he can possibly change. I thought that was a really neat um, addition to the game that I really haven't seen in like a worker placement game like this before where you could lose workers to something that is just moving around the different areas. So they, you, everybody does start off with a card that lets you escape from being arrested once. But if you actually hold on to that game till the end of the, or if you actually hold on to that card until the end of the game, it actually is worth two additional victory points. So you have to figure out, do I want to lose a worker? Do I want to lose two victory points? Do I possibly have other cards in my hand? That will let me get away and work around this patrol if, if that patrol is going to be in an area that I need to get to to complete some missions. After that, you're going to look at the board. There's a couple of different um, areas of the board. There's a tavern and a market where if there are people, um, different people there, you can actually do some trading between you. Each area lets you trade some different components from the game. I don't really think anybody in our game actually ever traded anything. There were times where we were in the areas where we could, and everybody just looked at each other's cards and was like, I am not giving you any of my stuff because I need these to complete my missions. So every time every time we, there was an opportunity for trading, the trading was just completely shot down. And there was actually one time where I thought a trade was going to happen, but then everybody backed out at the last second. So I really don't think any trading actually ever happened during our game. And then after that, after you go basically, well, since our trading round went so fast, we then moved on to the actions. Wherever you placed your workers during the turn, uh, you're going to get to activate them one at a time in turn order, and everybody's going to remove them and do something with them. So if you have a worker in a particular section of the board and you need that worker there for completing a mission, you'll say, I'm going to remove this car- this meeple um, from this area. I'm going to complete this mission. I have... These resources, I have this location, I have a blessing, I have the geisha, whatever you need to complete the mission, you will show. If you possibly need to discard any of those things, you will discard them. You will then get a certain amount of money. You can then see if you can complete the bonus part of that mission or not, and then set that card over to the side face down. And it's a good idea to keep all of your completed missions face down, mainly because those endgame cards could come into play. So you really don't want 
people to see what type of missions you're finishing. Well, they're going to see them when you're finishing them, but you don't, hopefully they won't remember that, you know, you've completed X amount of, you know, thievery missions or the different type of missions that there are, um, depending on whoever has the end game scoring cards that could give you additional points for that. So you're going to go around the board and be removing all of the, all of the workers that you put down to take a particular action or do something that is on that particular spot on the board. And the, the sections are almost cut into like pie sections on the board. You can see all the different sections. After that, you're going to go back up to that phase one, which is that prep phase, which I kind of said at the beginning where you're just doing some cleanup from the end of the round. And you're doing this for 11 rounds. The game is a little bit longer of a game. Ours took us a couple, um, probably two to three hours to play, I would say. I think probably closer to three. It was probably two and a half, maybe three hours. Um, it was the first time I think most of us had played this game. Um, I think only one person, uh, my buddy Jim, that had actually brought the game, who did a very great job in teaching it, was the person who actually, I think, played it before. I don't think the, the, the three of us had ever played this game before, but um, I really enjoyed the game. I thought there was a lot going on. There's a lot of strategy. There's also a lot of randomness. If you don't like randomness in your worker placement games with those event cards, and I don't even know what type of randomness the samurai cards could add, but my buddy Jim, when we were when he was setting it up, he was saying this could even increase the randomness more. I said let's leave those out if that's a if that's an option uh, because that is a harder style of the game using the samurais. We just use the geishas, so I can't even imagine playing with that, but uh, I kind of would like to try it, actually. Um, I guess I'm sadistic enough to want to do that. The game was a hell of a lot of fun. Everybody really liked it. Um, we all had a good time. The scores were all really close. Everybody was real close at the end of the game. Um, it was really tight up until that last turn, and, you know, we were all counting, you know, uh, the victory points down to the the additional cards that we had that gave us the end game scoring bonuses, and that was pretty much how you know, we were we were able to finish it and then figure out who the winner was. But uh, Yido is an it's an older game, I believe. I believe it's a game that originally was released back in 2012. So it's not that old, but you know, it's definitely not something that's been out in the past, you know, two years or so. Uh, but a heck of a lot of fun. A lot going on in the board. Components were really nice. The board looked really nice. And if you can get if you can find somebody with Yido, get into the table. I would definitely give this one a shot. I really liked it, and I had a really good time with Yido. After that, over the weekend, my wife and I sat down, and we were able to get one of the expansions that I picked up several weeks ago that we were going to try to play uh, to the table finally. We finally got Seven Wonders Duel Pantheon to the table, and wow, this expansion adds some really, really cool things to what we thought was a really good game. You're going to be removing the guild cards, and there are other purple, darker purple cards than the guild cards, actually, that will be put into the third age deck. In the first two ages, in the first, you're, there are some tokens that are going to be put on the cards. In the first age, there are five different mythology tokens that you will put on some of the cards. In the second age, there are tokens that you're going to put on the cards, which will allow you to purchase some of the mythology cards cheaper. They give you a little bit of a discount on them. During that first age, whenever you remove a card from the pyramid or the design, which, you know, the pyramid design in that first round, when you remove a card that's going to kind of reveal a card that you can flip over that has a token on there, you will take that token, whatever color it is, 
there is a matching mythology deck off to the side. Well, I don't want to say deck because each of those are, there's only three cards in them, but those mythology cards can do some really interesting things in the game. And the neat thing is you have the Pantheon now above the top of the board where you normally show where you're at with your warfare between the two characters. There's six spots, I believe, that you're going to be putting cards into, and you're only going to be putting five cards into there, and then the last spot is going to be um, a door card that you could put down. But the neat thing about it is these mythology cards, you're going to... So let's say I, you know, I, I was removing cards, and I removed a card that actually revealed... When I went to flip it over, it had a tile on there, and I get to choose from the red mythology cards. So I would take the top two... I would pick the one that I'd want to play, and I would place that face down in the Pantheon. Now, the neat thing about the Pantheon is there are different costs on each of the different card slots. There are two different costs on there, one with an arrow pointing towards me, one myself, one with an arrow pointing towards my opponent. So the ones that are closer to me cost less. The ones that are further from me are going to cost more for me. Vice versa for the ones for my opponent. For So for my wife, when she was playing, the ones that were closer to her are cheaper. The ones that are closer to me are more expensive for her, which is an interesting tactic because when you're drawing those cards, if it's a card you really don't want, you may want to put that closer to your opponent and it would cost you more. But if it's something you're not going to buy, it may be a card you may just want to say, you know, hey, I don't care if it costs them eight or what they have to pay for it. I'm just going to put it over there because I'd rather have a card over closer to me, that may cost me three. So I think that's a really interesting strategy. The other neat thing is when you actually get to use these cards or take these cards, purchase these cards in the second age, um, once you get done with that whole first age, the game kind of mixes itself up in that normally to do an action, you're going to be removing a card from, you know, the pyramid or the set that of cards that's in front of you. But to purchase one of these Pantheon cards in that second age, you just take that action as I'm going to purchase the card, spend the money, you take the card, and then do whatever the card says. So you can really change and alter the gameplay of this game because normally at the beginning of a round, if somebody decides that they want to possibly go second or so, and they've tried to do some card counting to say, okay, I'm going to try to go for this particular card, and if I go second... I should be able to work my way up to a particular card. So you can almost do some card counting there, but this really lets the game change some in that to take one of these cards, those Pantheon cards, you don't have to take a card from the center of the table. So what you're doing there is you're actually altering which cards everybody can get as you're playing through the round. And this happens quite a bit since there are six cards available, which is really interesting. It's a really, it really changes the strategy of the game and it really makes you think a lot more. Uh, this expansion definitely adds a lot to the base game. Like I said, my wife and I loved the base game. We thought the base game was really good. But this expansion, strategy wise, just makes you think a lot more about what you need to do and how to go about things. In the third age, the cards that you're going to be adding, instead of being guild cards, you're going to be adding cards that are for set collection. If you can collect two of them, uh, for one of them, you'll get five points. For two, I think you get 12. For th for collecting all three of them, I think you get 21 points. So it's straight up just set collection. The other interesting thing is those mythology tokens that you were collecting in that first round, if you have any of those and it matches the token that's on one of those cards you can get one of those cards for free. 
And those cards usually do have a very high resource cost to them. Usually some of the highest I think that I've ever seen. It's usually about five or possibly six different resources that you kind of need to come up with to be able to obtain one of those cards. So Seven Wonders Pantheon, Seven Wonders Dual Pantheon. Wow, I can't. Spectacular. Great expansion for a great game. It adds a hell of a lot more strategy into the game. The game does not detract for anything. Um, there's just so many of the different uh, mythology cards can just do so many different things. You also get, uh, I think, two new wonder cards that you can add to the set, and those could just pretty much be played with. The one I don't know if you'd want to play with, considering it actually lets you take some of the mythology cards, and I think, you know, you get to take one of each color and possibly keep one, I think it is. So one of them I don't know if you'd want to add if you aren't playing with the mythology cards. The other one you probably could. It doesn't utilize, I think, anything really from the expansion, but I don't know if I'd ever actually go back to playing this game without the expansion because it adds just enough to the game to make it that much more strategic and that much more exciting and fun that playing without it, I think, is just kind of too plain Jane probably for us right now. So I don't think we'd ever go back to just playing with just the base game Seven Wonders Duel. Pantheon, definite thumbs up. If you have this game in your collection and you do not have the expansion yet, I'd go pick this one up immediately because you'll, you will not be sorry you picked it up. If, if you really like Seven Wonders Duel, you got to get it immediately. That's about all I can suggest. All right, and I think that's about it. One of the last things I wanted to talk about that I played, I played a heck of a lot of Knights of Pen and Paper plus one on my Android devices past week and weekend. Every time I was sitting around watching the TV with my wife, I kind of pulled this out, went through a dungeon, went through a mission. And before I knew it, I looked at my characters before I started the podcast. They are all level 37. Uh, I think one of the dungeon maxes out around level 40, possibly 42. So I think I'm getting close to the end of the game, and I'm really looking at picking up the second one now because the second one looks like it has a lot of cool stuff to it. I don't know why all of a sudden this past week I kind of just flew through the game. Like I said, anytime I was kind of sitting there watching TV, I just kind of picked up my phone and kind of just did a mission here or there. And before I knew it, over the weekend, I just did a hell of a lot of missions, and I completed a hell of a lot of things and power leveled all my characters, and I really, I'm really liking it. It's just a neat little fun and take on a Dungeons and Dragons style game. Um, some of the missions that I've run into and some of the monsters that I've run into are still kicking my butt at level 37. So I need to try to figure out how to defeat a couple of different things in the game. But um, I've 100%ed a majority of the board, probably a good 80 to 90% of the board. Um, all of the areas are completed with 100%. Um, so I'm going to try to maybe finish that one this week and maybe I'll be starting the second one here, possibly before the next podcast. Who knows? But we will see. Um, other than that, let's talk about a few things that I want to play. I was looking around on Board Game Geek. Legendary, Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Okay, so I picked up the Buffy, the new Buffy board game a couple weeks ago from the game store. It's co-op. Haven't played it yet with the wife. Maybe taking this one down to the game store to try to get it. But um, Legendary, uh, Buffy the Vampire um, is a deck builder. So it's supposed to be kind of co-op or semi-co-op. So once again, I don't know if I'm going to be able to get the legendary one to be able to play with my wife or not, but um, at being a Buffy fan, I may have to pick this one up. I don't think you need any of the other legendary games to play it. I believe it's completely standalone. Um, but I kind of just like to see how it is and maybe check it out. Hopefully I can find some videos on it. I really haven't looked too much into it yet, so there may be some videos out there and I just haven't had a chance to look for them. Kind of looking forward to that one. 
Um, another game I'm looking forward to, Port Royale, is a game that's being put out by uh, Steve Jackson Games, I believe. This is a reprint. It's finally coming to the U.S. This is a game that I believe has been over in Europe for a while. It's won quite a few awards. Um, this card game looks like it's very interesting. I like pirate-themed games. So if this is a good pirate-themed game, I may be picking this one up as well. If you have not checked out Port Royale yet, definitely look for that one. And then, of course, there's a new Rick and Morty game. Rick and Morty, close Rick counters of the Rick kind deck building game. I'm hoping this one's a little bit better than a couple of the Rick and Morty games we played before that were just very light kind of filler games. Considering this is a deck builder, I'm hoping it has a little bit more meat and substance to it. I'm a huge Rick and Morty fan. I think I'm finally getting my wife on board with Rick and Morty as well. I think she's starting to like it too now. So definitely going to have to take a look at that one and being a Rick and Morty fan and can't wait to give that one a shot. But other than that, that's it for this podcast. That's the games that I played for the week and then a few things that I would like to play. All right, as always, you can send me some emails. Let me know what you're playing now. You can send those emails to what I'm playing now at gmail.com. You can also join us in some conversation over on Board Game Geek. We have Guild over there, Guild number 2440. On Twitter, you can follow me at what I'm playing now. You can see what games I'm playing during the week. I normally try to take some pictures of the games I'm playing and then tweet them out and then try to talk about them with anybody who would love to talk about those as we are playing them. On Facebook, you can do a search for what I'm playing now. You will find me there on Facebook. Our Google Plus page is plus.google.com slash the plus side, what I'm playing now podcast. And then, of course, our Twitch channel is twitch.tv slash what I'm playing now. I'm going to try to get this podcast edited very quickly as my wife and I will be heading over my buddy Jim's house here very shortly for a couple of scenarios of Arcadia Quest. So I will probably be talking about that on next week's episode. But until then, everybody, you know what to do. Go out there, play some games, and then let me know what you're playing now. Until next week, have a great week, everybody. Go play some games, and we will talk to you later. Thanks for joining me. Bye-bye.